Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the, lake, to the, end of the age. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, my name is Shane Hughes. Uh, I am one of the ministers here and it's good for you to be with us. Whether you're here in this room or if you're online, it's good to see you. I'm glad uh, you're able to join us this morning. We're finishing up a series that we've called Gospeled. It's about how do we live into the truth that God has taught us. And so uh, before we kind of finish looking at Matthew 28, if you want to put your Bible there, uh, I want to kind of wrap us up, help us understand where we've gone in this journey. We started by talking about our baptism. Our baptism is the first step of obedience through, in, as we step into the story of our faith. Our baptism is the first step of obedience as we launch into the story of our faith. What happens in that moment is that Christ meets us in the waters and it changes everything. We thought about that week how that when you're, when you're young and you haven't made a lot of choices yet, you have a lot of options. There's a lot of doors open for you. But as you begin to pick a career or pick a spouse or pick um, where you're going to live, those doors start closing because you chose him, you can't choose anyone else. Because you chose to live in this place, it's difficult for you to live anywhere else. And in some ways, that's a limiting experience. Well, what happens when Christ meets you in the waters is that you begin to secede some of the control of your life to his. I'm going to choose to follow Christ in the way that I act, the things that I believe, the choices that I make. I'm not going to be completely autonomous anymore. But the mystery of faith is that what we find when we limit our choices, that it sets us free in ways we never expected. Because there's a whole level of intimacy that you cannot reach unless you make commitment and covenant. There's a level of connection that you, you cannot achieve unless you choose to be in a place, to live wherever you are. When you become part of a community, it changes things. And even though it means you can't be a part of any other community, it means that the community that you're a part of is going to mean more to you. And the reason that we believe that Christ meets us in the waters, that that, that changes our life, is because Jesus is the best news. Jesus isn't just good news for us. He's the best news to the world. There's a lot of different ideas about religion. There's a lot of different ideas that aren't religion, but, but seem so. Atheism, agnosticism, or uh, humanism, uh, secular humanism. Those are all philosophies that offer some truths and some outcomes. But what, what we believe is that following Jesus isn't just good news. It's the best news. It's the best choice that you can make for your life. And as Amy reminded us last week, we are spirit-empowered people. Just as the Spirit came on the apostles and the followers and the disciples in Acts chapter 2, it also falls on us, and that changes the way that we live. And so this week, I want us to think about what do we do with the gospel? What it, what, how do we carry it? And where do we take it? One of the um, exercises that I loved to do when I was a campus minister 
was um, to have, particularly freshmen, but sometimes sophomores, write their own epitaph. You know what an epitaph is. It's the, it's the words that are carved into the, the headstone of your life. And if you have a little more time, not just that one sentence or that one phrase, but actually write your obituary. Now, for some of us who are a little bit older, your obituary has kind of already been written, but there's still some time. You can swing things around. You can still pull it off. Like, if, if you wanted in your obituary, you ate the most gummy bears of anyone else in the history into the entire world, like, God bless, go for it, whatever. You know, it's good. Good for you. Uh, but most of us want something more meaningful. Want our lives to be, have more, more meaning or, and have affected people in a deeper and a more fundamental way. And so the question of thinking about your obituary as you're an 18-year-old freshman is the question of deciding, how do I want to court my, set the course of my life? How do I want to chart the decisions I'm going to make? What am I going to value? Because if you're not thinking about those choices, those choices get made for you. If you could write your own obituary, what would you want to include? How do you want to be remembered? I think close to an obituary is kind of like last words. If you could offer last words, what would they be? Because what we're going to look at today in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' last words that he spoke to his disciples. I mean, and some of these, you know, are credited. They're kind of lost in antiquity. So I'm going to just trust that what I'm saying is true. But I don't put 100% weight in it. But sometimes last words are very profound. Like Isaac Newton who said... But as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then and finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the graced ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Which sounds like a very humble statement, but you have to remember who Sir Isaac Newton was. This is the person that co-discovered calculus and invented telescopes. Or sometimes last words are, are profound in a different way, like Emily Dixonson, who said, I must go in, for the fog is rising. Now, I think you can take this on two levels. One might be, she was outside, she was getting cold, she wanted a jacket. I've got to go inside. But there is another deeper sense, I must go in, for the fog is rising. Sometimes last words are profound. Sometimes they're sincere, like... Sir Arthur Corn Doyle, he's the person that wrote uh, Sherlock Holmes. He died at 71 in his garden, and his last words were when he turned to his wife and said, you are wonderful. Then he clutched his chest and died. Or like Nostradamus. Now, you know Nostradamus made a lot of predictions about the world, about the future, what was going to happen. Uh, he wrote these kind of four trains in, in very cryptic language, so people would have to decipher them. Uh, the most common thing about Nostradamus is fundamentally that he's wrong, but here's what his last words were accredited to him. Tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. He got that one right. <laughs> or my favorite, um, there's a surgeon named Joseph Henry Green, and he was checking his own pulse as he lay dying, and his last word was stopped. Let's, uh, let's pray before we turn our minds to God's word. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're grateful to be gathered in this place. We're grateful for the hearts that are here, that are open 
and excited to experience you. And Father, I'm grateful that there are so many different ways that you have revealed yourself to us through creation and through wisdom and logic, uh, through the wonder of the minds that you have given us, Father, through the beauty of your Son, but also through your Word. And so, Father, now as, as we turn our hearts to your Word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that we might, I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So let's turn to the text. If you have your Bible, Matthew 28. This is a fascinating story. These are the last words. Now, Matthew wants us to know who Jesus is. That's the whole point of why he wrote his gospel. He wants to begin by letting you know that this is the son of Abraham and this is the son of David. This is the promise that was promised and that was come true. And Matthew wants to know that this is the fulfillment of Scripture. The prophets long to look toward the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the words of the Old Testament. And Matthew wants you to know that he is not only Messiah, he is God. He has the power to cure sickness. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to exercise demons. Not only is he powerful, but Jesus is wise. He is the way to take the Old Testament scripture and read it in a way that opens our hearts and our minds. It reveals the evil in ourselves and it points us to a better way. He is not only God, he is not only powerful, he is not only the fulfillment of scripture and the prophets, he is not only the son of Abraham and the son of David, he is also sacrifice. Matthew wants you to know that Jesus Christ died on a cross. He did it in obedience and submission to his Father for the salvation of the world. The perfect sacrifice without blemish. But that's not the end of the story. Matthew wants to know three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. And then it's a really short story. You think there would be a lot more stories about the post-resurrection experience Uh, with the disciples in Matthew, but it's not. Jesus begins by being raised from the dead in chapter 28, and by the end of it, the story's over. There's very few experiences that the apostles have with the risen Lord. God, he is different. He has changed. But we go into this text, and the first thing you notice when you look at it is that that there are 11 that are gathered. And that's, that's sad in a way, isn't it? Because there was supposed to be 12, but we know the story of Judas. We know that Judas couldn't take his own betrayal and that the guilt, that shame uh, forced him to make poor decisions. There should be 12, but there's only 11 and there's some grief there. But also what that means is it could have been 10. Because Peter and Judas had the same betrayal. Peter denies Jesus again and again and again before the rooster crows. The only difference is that Peter waited long enough to see Jesus. So there's 11 that are gathered. They're not 12, but it's also not 10. And when they come together, this is the first time I've noticed this in this text. Maybe you've seen it before. When they come together and they meet Jesus on the mountain, they worshiped and doubted. Do you see that in your Bible? They worshiped and doubted. Both of those two things occur at the same time in this text. And and this isn't, this is more like Peter in the boat than Thomas and the finger. You remember Peter's out walking on the water and he sees the winds and the waves and he begins to sink. 
That's the kind of doubting that's happening right now in the, in the apostles. And can you blame them? Think about the last few days that they had. The resurrection and the whirlwind of everything that happened around Jerusalem. It's disorienting. It's disconnecting. They're trying to figure it all out. It's kind of like right now. We have come through a whirlwind of changes and adjustments and everything's different. And we're trying to just figure what it's all about right now. And so all of us come with worship in one hand and confusion in the other. And we come with questions like, why aren't my prayers being answered in the way I'd hoped? Why does everybody else's life seem so much better than mine? Why would God want my broken existence anyway? And I want us to notice that what Jesus says and the scene that's laid out is so strikingly different. Jesus is again on a mountain, and that, that reminds us in Matthew of, of Sermon on the Mount where he delivers wisdom and the transfiguration that happened on a mount, which was so powerful. And you miss it if you're not paying attention. You miss it if you're not looking. There are four alls in this text. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything, all the things I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You miss it if you're not paying attention, and those are amazing words. And so what Jesus says is this powerful statement, but what we see in the scene is 11 confused, bewildered, powerless disciples on a hill in a podunk part of the world. And Keith Hudson turned me on to this fascinating connection. I want to share it with you today between this text and the Pixar movie Toy Story. You guys know Toy Story, right? I'm going to spoil it for you in a terrible way. And if you haven't seen it yet, it's like 12 years old. That's your own fault. Um, It's a profound story arc of wonder and the loss of childhood. But I want to focus in on the first Toy Story here. When, When the first Toy Story movie opens, Buzz Lightyear comes as this new toy into Andy's room. Now, the thing that's weird about Buzz Lightyear is that he doesn't know he's a toy. He thinks he's actually Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, that battles, uh, you know, evil space forces. He believes he can fly. And so he's telling the other toys, this is who I am. This is what I do. And Woody, who's the cowboy, the leader of the group, he's not having it. He doesn't believe any of that. He says, you can't fly. You're made out of plastic. Buzz says, can too. What he says, prove it. And Buzz says, I can do it with my eyes closed. And so he climbs up onto uh, Andy's bedpost and he closes his eyes, his wings pop out, and he just jumps off the side of the bed. And he falls, he lands on one of those bouncy balls, springs out of that, lands on a Hot Wheel like race car track, does the loop, shoots up into the air, gets caught into like this airplane that's hanging from the ceiling. That whips him around a few times. And then he lands right next to Woody back on the bed. And Buzz opens his eyes and says, see? And then Woody says that great line, that wasn't flying, that was falling with style. And then later in the story, Buzz realizes the truth, that he's not the Buzz Lightyear, that he's a toy. He's just a toy. And it throws him into this morass 
and the, reala- the reality of it is so overwhelming, he nearly doesn't make it. And I wonder, why have we lost our way in the Great Commission? Why have we lost our way in the Great Commission? That's what this text is called. Because God is, Jesus is sending his disciples. He's sending his apostles. He's sending us. And maybe it's history. Maybe it's, you know, 2,000 years of missteps where people were carrying the gospel in one hand and a sword in the other on some sort of crusade or some other conversion by force or violence. Maybe it's because we've all been on the wrong side of a, a manipulative or coercive attempt at conversion. Maybe it's because we've all been turned off by that stranger at the uh, football game entrance shouting who exactly is and who's not going to hell. And then imagining their hoarse voice at the end of the day, sweaty brow, and that smug sense of righteousness that at least we set those people straight. Maybe it's because you went into a season of deconstruction and you never bothered to put the pieces of your faith back together. And so you don't know what the gospel is, and you don't know what the good news is, because you haven't found it for yourself yet. And I get it. I get it. We run down those wayward paths because we've lost the power of our story. Jesus is the best news. And that news is not fragile, that news is not boring, but we lost the story because we got confused about what our job is. Somehow in our lives, we've begun to think that God is this bit player that saves us when we're in trouble. I'm going to keep living my life, doing my thing, having my adventure, and when I get into trouble, God's going to come and rescue me. That's not the story of the Bible. That's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is, is that God has invited us into the most incredible story. And it is by following God, by listening to Jesus, that we find our way through the hard times. Maybe it's because at some point we thought we were supposed to be converters, that that was our job, to win people for Jesus. And that is scary, and that is risky, and that takes all sorts of special training. So let's just leave it to the professional missionaries to do their thing. I want you to hear me clearly. Your job is not to change the heart of another person. That is the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is the work that God does, not us. The most powerful miracle that God can perform is the, the changed heart. The most powerful miracle God can perform is the changed heart, and the good news is that it happens all the time. You don't have to do conversion. You just have to be a disciple that's ready to show others how to be a disciple. Jesus says, live with others. Guide them how to be students of God. Teach them how to be disciples or followers. The best teachers I've ever had aren't the ones with the right answers, but the ones that led me to the right questions. And when I think about this kind of disciple, you know I think about it's Adam Jenkins. You've never met Adam. When I met Adam, he was about... um, eight years old. He was, a, he was a kid living in Arkansas when I was doing campus ministry. He was the, uh, the son of the children's ministry at the church I worked at. And Adam had this fixation on trains and spaceships. You know how like 
I think almost everyone goes through a dinosaur phase where they can remember the name of every dinosaur and you're just kind of lost and confused as they tell you all the facts. That was Adam about trains. He knew every kind of train engine. He knew every kind of train. He knew where the tracks ran in the U.S. He knew what the time schedules were. He could answer any question that you ever had about trains. But more importantly, he made you, like, curious about trains, too. Because he'd tell you cool facts. He'd tell you amazing stories. He would help you know a little bit more about trains just to the point where you wanted to, like, ride a train, too. And I think that's our job. It's it's the best kind of curious and tenacious and relentlessness about God. Our job is to embody gospel. Max Lucado wrote this parable for children. It's about the Wemmicks, and the Wemmicks are created by uh, the toy maker named Eli, and he lives on the highest hill, but it's not so far away from the village that, that they can't see him and he can't talk to them. And the Wemmicks just kind of go about their day, and they learn what it means to be special and loved by God. But in the sequel, which is even better than the first one, the Wemmicks get gifts in their mailboxes. And one Wemmick gets a hammer, and another gets needle and thread, and another gets a a soup spoon. They all have different gifts. And and one day, there are new Wemmicks that come into town, and they're trying to get up to see Eli, and they can't see Eli because their cart breaks down. Well, all the Wemmicks forget how to use their gifts. And the one that's supposed to be the baker, he brings clothes, but the clothes are too big. And the one that's supposed to hold the hammer, he thinks he's going to bake stuff. And so he brings burnt bread and cold soup, and they all forget that they're supposed to use their gifts. And of course, it's a kid's story. And they all work it out. And the guest Wemmicks get to go up to see Eli. But embedded in that parable is a deep and powerful truth. You you use your gifts to help others get closer to God. That's what it means. You help them answer the question that they're trying to ask. You direct them to the more interesting question. You point by your life how the fruit of the gospel plays out in your family and at your work. You use the gifts that God has given you to point others to God. It's really not that scary. But I'm going to meddle for a minute. I think I've told you this story before. There was a preacher in Arkansas, and, uh, you know, he was preaching about drinking. And at the end of the service, there was a guy in the back, and he said, go get him, preacher. And then uh, the second sermon, he got up, and he, he was preaching about smoking. And as he's walked to the back, that same guy was there, and he said, go get him, preacher. And the third Sunday night, he preached about gambling. And he walks to the back of the auditorium, and the guy said, now you're just meddling. You'll get that later. First got it. They were on their pain. I'm going to meddle for just a second. Um, We are in a very interesting time right now. People are coming out of a pandemic. I saw a stat that said 40% of people are reconsidering their jobs. Right now, they'd they'd consider a change. I'm kind of curious how much more that is than normal. Um, but a lot of people right now are thinking, maybe I want to do something else with my life. They've had time to think and reflect and wonder if this is really what I want to do. And so people are kind of in transition. That's happening in our vocations. It's even more important what's happening spiritually. People are wondering if the lives that they're living are worthwhile. People are wondering if the way that their family is going is the way they really want it to go. And we're in one of those places where people are asking questions. And God is leading those people. He is changing their hearts. He is moving in this world through the power of his spirit to bring those people back to him. And what he needs is some good Wemmicks 
that are going to use their gifts to say, I want to take you up to Eli's house. And this church has lost its mission. And what I mean by that is we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out where we're at and who we are, and we're all coming back at the same time, and we're trying to see old friends again and reconnect and figure out how our Bible class is going to go and where's my small group, and those are important questions, questions that we're of asking, but those are not mission questions. And we kind of need to lift our eyes off of our own nasal gazing, navel gazing, nasal gazing? I think that's this. Um, uh, navel gazing and see the people that God is calling to us so that we can use our gifts to say, there he is. And the most simple way that that happens is it happens right here in this room. And the most simple thing that you can do to be a part of that is look around in your little church neighborhood and see who's new and say, I've never met you before. And odds are they're going to say, well, I just go to first and, you know, I slept in, so I'm here at second. That, that may happen. That may, and you, oh, good, cool. But the other thing that might happen is they say, you know, I'm not sure why I'm here. I haven't been in a church building in the last 15 years. But I felt something. I heard something on the radio, and it made me think, I ought to go to that place. I don't know what I'm doing here. And that moment is a gospel moment where you get to say, come with me. Let me show you the king. And the good news is we don't have to be cool to do this. Like, thank God, you know. Uh, We don't have to be cool to do this. Research says that a church that is warm, warm is the new cool. A church that is friendly, a church that is opening, uh, open, the church that has people that have, like, friendship gaps, you know, you can meet somebody new and you could talk to them. You have the space in your life to invite them over for coffee or go out to eat with them. You have the space to say, hey, I think you might um, have something to offer us. I think we want to, those kind of churches, churches that are warm, are all that God needs. Maybe we lost our way on the Great Commission because we missed the text. Maybe it's that Jesus is making two other claims in this and we don't want to miss them. One is that he is the resurrected Lord. None of this makes any sense without that fact, that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was crucified on the cross, and three days later, he was raised. Therefore, God gave him all authority over heaven and earth. Our confidence is not in our own strategy or work, but in the power of Christ. And the second promise that's in this text is that God is never going to abandon you. He will be with you until the end of the age. Or another way to say that, is to infinity and beyond. Right? Buzz Lightyear, he thinks he's Buzz Lightyear. He's not. He's just a toy. And in the middle of that story, he meets that, he has that moment where he realizes who he really is and what he can really do and what his purpose really is in this world. But at the end of that movie, at the end of Toy Story, Woody is getting left behind from all the other toys, and he's never going to be able to catch up. They're driving away, and he is a goner, gone for good. He's never going to see Andy again. And in that moment, Buzz swoops in behind him, grabs him in the middle, and picks him up and takes him into the sky. And Woody says, Buzz, you're flying. And Buzz says, no, I'm just falling with style. And that's sort of what we all do. We fall with style into grace. That is the beauty of who we are 
and why we gather here around this table. No one deserves to be here. No one has earned the right. But we all have experienced the same thing. That God's wondrous love is the biggest thing in the universe. And that Jesus' life, that is the best thing. And so all of us get to gather around this table. We get to share communion together. We experience the body and the blood of Christ. And it changes us. It makes us whole. It makes us new. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for all of the goodness that you've given us in our lives. Thank you for your son Jesus who has authority of heaven and earth and will never leave our side. And Father, we pray now as we ponder your son's death and his new life, what place we have in our kingdom, your kingdom. And it's through his name we pray. Amen. Highland, this is the body of Christ, which was broken for you. Brothers and sisters, this is the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. Thanks be to God. So as you leave today, I want you to notice the freshly painted buildings, the beautiful landscaping, the new planters. All of that is because our high school and middle school students experienced Restoration Week this week. And they served to make our church a more hospitable place for those who might come, who God is sending our way. So if you see a middle school student, ask them how it went. If you see a high school student, ask them uh, if they enjoyed it. I don't know what the answer that would be. Um, it was hot this week. But more than that, see ourselves. See us as that village of Wemix at the base of the hill that the path that others will take to meet our King. And maybe, just maybe this week, you can use your gifts to point somebody else to God. There's no other purpose or meaning or truth that you will find better. So this week, may you be filled with the presence of God. May you see the Spirit's work all around you.